Welcome back. Thank you for joining us for part two of this podcast. You've talked quite a lot about the facilitators in this process. What, what, what's, uh, what's the role and the skill of the facilitator in, in, in this uh, particular process you've talked about? Well, well, firstly, unlike many processes, the facilitators also tell their stories as uh-huh. well. Um, so they too are people on the journey of healing. I, I like to think of the facilitator as a midwife. Um, as I understand it, the midwife is there to help to make the birth as easy as possible. But the midwife doesn't have the baby. The woman has the baby. And so, so equally... Uh, it is a person telling their story, and the midwife is, if, if you like, the, is the accompanier. Um, and then sometimes the baby pops out quite easily. Sometimes there's a lot of hard work to, you must push, you must what, you must what. So I think for me that imagery uh, is very relevant in thinking about the role of the facility. And of course, literally the word means to make easy. Um, and, and, and so that's the role. And, but also it's to hold the space, to help the space to be safe as well um, and to avoid hijacking. Um, you know, uh, maybe you made some reference when you were telling your story to the British prime minister. Um, and so we say, oh, yes. Now, the thing about the, thing about the British prime minister Boris Johnson is like the, suddenly we've hijacked the process. You know, so there are many there or or, uh, it reminds me of Psalm 26, verse eight says one of the participants. And again, we've hijacked. Uh, We've got. And so the the facilitator, if they're not a good facilitator, could be a hijacker. The person themselves can hijack their own story when it's deeper or other participants. So the facilitator is helping us keep focused on what we're doing. And, And the invitation is always to go deeper, as deep as possible that you're willing to on that occasion, but it's invitational and never coercive as well. I mean, I think some you, you and I are old enough to remember there was a time and many years ago of group life dynamics, which were often brutal in the way they, they force people to say, to say and do things, where this is a much uh, a gentler process. That's that's very interesting, and I think I'm particularly struck by the fact that the facilitators tell their own stories, so they are, in a way, participants as well as midwives. And Compan- um, companions, companions on the way, companions, and people yeah. often, because also uh, it's important that the facilitator is not the guru who's got it all together. Uh, they are people who too are traveling on their journey of healing. So that's part of it being a flat model. People have different roles, but we're all part of, of healing journeys. Yes, I, I like the, the word accompanying or companion. I think that's, uh, and uh, I think there's a danger, uh, as there always is when these things become professionalized, is that the facilitator is seen as a kind of technical or expert role. Good. And yes. that's to get it very wrong, I think. Uh, yes, uh, so, and that, that whole methodology in that sense is a lay, lay methodology. Yes. Uh, we, we try and train our um, facilitators as well as we possibly can, but but it's not about uh, experts uh, as well. Uh, and I think that's part of the giftedness of the gift of this particular uh, methodology. Because you know? yeah. I think I think in a way uh, we had over expertized, if there's such a term, the response to human pain. 
and we had devalued the wisdom of the ages as well. Um, so I think it's it's not to devalue the role of the expert, but it's rather to say we need to recover uh, the wisdom which is there in societies and communities uh, and in faith traditions to bring to bear on these journeys of healing. Yeah. Okay, I just had a couple of details I wanted to pick up on here before we finish. One is, um, does this process work for perpetrators of violence as well as victims? Well, one of the things we've learned early on is that all human beings are capable of being perpetrators and victims. And we can be both at the same time. Um, I can be um, a, a, a victim of political violence and I can be a perpetrator in the bedroom to my intimate partner. And most of us see ourselves or see much more clearly our victimhood and are often quite hazy at the ways in which we are, are perpetrators. Um, you know, we've done a great deal of work in prison and um, there are studies that show that the majority of people who have done the most terrible things to other human beings have had terrible things done to them. And so often they were victims before they became perpetrators. And sometimes in our workshops in prison, when prisoners tell their story, it's the first time they make the connection between what they have done to other human beings and what was done to them. So healing of memories speaks to breaking the chain uh, as well. And of course, when I've done terrible things to others, often my deepest feelings are about guilt and shame. Um, and, and I think that's why often individuals and societies remain in denial uh, because of the, uh, uh, how hard it is to face up to, to guilt and shame. <clears throat> Thank you, that's really helpful. And I'm, I'm make a connection there with what you, something very striking you said earlier on, which is one of the two most common sets of stories you hear are about childhood abuse. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Um, and uh, and gender-based violence. Yeah. And, and gender-based violence, yes, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I just wanted to ask about one other area, which is, uh, are there any dangers in this, would you say? I mean, there's been there's quite a lot in the literature about the dangers of re-traumatizing people uh, who've had, uh, you know, highly dangerous experiences and that actually recalling them or retelling them can be psychologically quite dangerous. Is that your experience or are there any well, potential harms I, that can be done by this process? I think it is a very delicate process, um, which is why people need to uh, be trained uh, well uh, to do it. Um, but it also is why um, uh, the follow-ups are important. And, and, and also, uh, if people are in therapy or seeing a psychiatrist, we will, uh, we will say to the, those people, please would you check with your therapist that they are comfortable for you to come and be part of this process. Um, so, sometimes the experts feel a bit uh, threatened by what we're doing. Uh, they either feel threatened or they're over the moon. Uh, <laughs> and then sometimes the professionals send people to us 
Um, because again, it, it's back to that issue of the power of multiple witnesses. There's a, there's a dimension of healing that can only happen in a collective process that cannot happen on a one-on-one. -on -one. But people, but, but also people can go from a one-on-one, -on -one, participate in a process like this, and then go back and continue the therapy. And often the therapist will tell us um, that the experience with healing of memories was the breakthrough. Uh, as well, as people were, were, were suddenly able to go to a new depth, face new things about themselves, and then they are ready to do uh, for, further work. Um, so, I mean, yes, there is, there is danger, but also sometimes people, um, uh, something happens, uh, and on the second day, maybe you get, they get a phone call, uh, something has happened at home, uh, that 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 is dangerous in a sense, you know. It's like you've taken your clothes off, and now you're going to walk down the street naked. Um, mm -hmm. Where in fact you need to go through the process, finish having your bath, and put your clean clothes on, which of course is part of the the liturgy because you are opening people up. But before they go out, you are putting fresh bandages on the wounds, and you know. Uh, moving forward on that, um, the and also uh, one of the things we uh, train facilitators is to look out for pathology that needs expert intervention. So if somebody says this happened to me uh, five years ago, and every night I woke up, I wake up screaming. They need clinical intervention. Um, the, uh, and so it's important that we say to people sometimes, are you, are you in therapy? Yes, I'm in therapy. Okay, that's great. I encourage you. Uh, are you seeing somebody professionally? No. Uh, do you think it would be helpful? Yes. Do you know someone you could, could help? No. Then we would help provide that kind of uh, referral as well. Though I remember say, talking about our work we do with a professor of psychiatry. Um, and I said, oh, of course, you know, we, will, we would always refer people. Uh, and he looked at me and said, don't be under the illusion that we can assist everybody uh, as well. Um, and I think, you know, we, 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 we can be deluded in thinking that uh, everybody can be assisted. Um, of course, there's a key, always a key issue as one of the first steps on the journey of healing is when, when I recognized that I'm being damaged by my past and I need healing, and then all things are possible. But when I'm in denial, there's nothing anybody can do for me. Um, and even then, they can't fix me, but other people can help accompany me on that journey. Uh, so, Michael, can you, can you say something about the difference between stories that heal and stories that harm, you know, kind of constructive stories and destructive stories? Well, you know, people sometimes say, oh, the heart of healing of memories is storytelling. And, 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 and my answer to that is not so. Um, wars are kept going by storytelling. Uh, grandparents tell their grandchildren stories that uh, have poison attached to them. And so new generations learn how to hate. They may have even forgotten about the details of the story, but they have imbibed the poison that is connected to it. 
Uh, so, 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 I think that sometimes people will tell a story which is full of hatred and bitterness, but because there's a focus on those feelings, that there's a process of letting out, and then in the process of, of the journey of a workshop, of a letting go. And that is where, if you like, I speak of gaining a new pair of spectacles. So it can be told as a poisonous story, but it has the capability of becoming a life-giving story uh, as well. So when you talk about harsh stories, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, I suppose harsh is when, when, when it has uh, destructiveness in it to oneself and to others. And I think um, people will tell a story where they speak of their hatred and their bitterness and desire for revenge. And often they've got incredibly good reasons for that. It is justifiable and justified. But the beginning of the journey of healing is when I say, yes, I've got very good reasons to feel that way, but it's not destroying my enemies, it's destroying me. And, and it's that, that recognition uh, that, is, that is key. Uh, it's like when somebody is an alcoholic, there's a, there's a moment of awakening when I say, uh, but this is destroying me. Uh, when that happens, then there are, then there are possibilities uh, for healing. I guess another type of harmful story is where people try to justify themselves. Is that the case? Well, yes, but of course, uh, but as you say, when you're justifying yourself, you know, you're, you're, you're shouting at yourself um, because then you're shouting louder and louder. And this is where, uh, you know, in many faith traditions of different faiths, the role of a retreat uh, is so important is when you, uh, you, you, you stop long enough so the shouting can, uh, can stop. Uh, it's interesting at the um, 60 years after the end of the Second World War, trauma centers in Europe began to fill up with old men. Uh, and they filled up with old men who had survived the war, uh, men in particular survived the war, uh, being competent, lived their lives, and then retirement came, and the demons would no longer be quiet. Um, and, 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 and so they had to begin to face up to uh, what I would call moral and spiritual injury that they had lived with uh, throughout their lives. Uh, where often people had they've turned to alcohol or even turned to violence, turned to ways to, 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 to dull the pain or to quieten the demons. But in the end, they wouldn't go away. So my own father was a soldier in the Second World War. And for most of his life, um, when he came back, he would never speak about the war. He wouldn't take part in military parades. And then when he was dying a slow uh, death from cancer, he began to talk about the war. Because again, he hadn't been able to quieten the demons. They had to be faced. And he had to own fully uh, who he was and, and, what, and what, what war had done to him. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's a very powerful... Uh, some image there of your traumatized father unable to speak and just think 
what might have happened if he'd been able to come to one of your workshops <laughs> it would have been rather complicated for you i guess but right but and, and, and if he'd been able to come uh shortly after he returned as a soldier and not have to live with the, all those years yeah, yeah those yeah, hidden, yeah. Hidden, hidden wounds yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So. Thank you. I think that's a very good point at which to, to draw this to a close. Can I just say uh, thank you very much for describing with such depth and clarity uh, this remarkable process that you've developed at the Institute of Healing Memories. I, I wish you well with it and I'm sure that when our students and others hear uh, what you've had to say it'll inspire others to, to take uh, these things seriously and try and do them in their own lives. So uh, thank you very much indeed for that. So no, thank, thank you, Simon. Thank yeah. you for your own for your own work and its importance. <laughs>